We are back. As mentioned a little bit earlier in the program, we're going to talk about an event uh, that took place this week at the zoo. It was called Solar Cookers International. It celebrated its 20th anniversary. The public was invited to come and learn about uh, some humanitarian work that's been going on. Dr. Bob Metcalf was one of the volunteers, was going to show about his recent trip to Kenya, where people are taught how to pasteurize drinking water and cook using solar power. Now, it so happens we know that our environmental correspondent, Jennifer Davidson, knows quite a bit about this, so we're going to get her on the phone and ask her about it. Jen, are you there? Hi, Doug. Tell us about uh, these solar cookers and and, uh, things that you can use to uh, purify water. Solar Cookers International has what is the world's simplest uh, solar cooker. It's called the Cook-It, and it's designed to turn the sun's energy into heat, which of course can cook food, and this is imperative for more than 2.5 billion people in developing countries around the world um, who don't have access to the resources that we have here in America. I've been to Africa. I know that it's a huge problem in some of the border areas of having to gather brush, cutting down trees, causing a lot of damage. There's plenty of free sunshine over there. This sounds like it could solve a lot of problems. It definitely does. It answers two critical questions for 2.4 billion people. How can more people cook without fire, and how can they make sure that their drinking water is safe? And as you mentioned, deforestation is destroying the environment in some of those regions, and that in itself it causes soil erosion, loss of habitat for wildlife, and because of the extent of the deforestation, there is little left for people in these villages to collect for themselves, and it's forcing women and children to walk over eight hours a day just to collect the fuel wood they need to cook their meal. So it's a huge problem. Now, I guess you, you've worked with Dr. Bob Metcalf over there at CSUS. He was one of your instructors? He was. He was my microbiology professor. Have you, have you tried one of these cookers and tried the water that's purified or what's done when it's cooking? Absolutely. That's part of uh, Bob's class. If you're in Bob's class, you learn how to use a solar cooker. And and it's really amazing. And this, this is really the point for, for people to get is that they can actually experience this in their backyard. They can do it themselves. They can see how incredible the sun can be just by using its heat to cook food. You can cook anything from cakes and pies and bread to roast beef. Uh, any other kind of meat, um, rice, vegetables, anything that you can cook, you can cook in a solar cooker. Let's go get one in the next couple of weeks, and let's actually do it and then report back to our listeners uh, maybe in October on this. Awesome. That would be fantastic. All right, because I know you got the connections. Let's go visit Dr. Bob over at, Cal, at Sac State and see, and see if he can give us one. Oh, he will. Okay. What should we make? I'm not a cook. I'll leave that up to you. I'm not a cook either. This is going to be bad. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear it. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's see if we can purify some water then. How about that? Okay. Oh, I am so good at that. Okay. All right. Uh, Jennifer Davidson is Radio Parallax's environmental correspondent. She also writes for the Sacramento News and Review. And in next week's issue on the 20th, there'll be a special issue about uh, climate change. So we're looking forward to talking about that next week. Thanks, Doug. And I'll talk to you soon. 
All right, we've only got about five minutes left in the program, and I hate to say it, but I do want to return back to some political issues, at least in regards to free speech and, and media issues. Excellent article in the Sacramento Bee on September 11th. Uh, the Media Savvy column by Sam McManus notes that uh, if you're expecting to get some news by watching uh, local television, you're in deep trouble. Noted Sam McManus, the most important story in the late news in Sacramento on August 27th, according to Channel 3, was a spate of aggressive panhandling in Citrus Heights. No, wait. Channel 40 thought it was a bear being shot in Tahoe City. Or maybe it was a cache of medical marijuana stolen from a Sacramento home, as Channel 13 determined. Then again, it could have been the fact that many 9-11 emergency calls from cell phones are having trouble getting through, which was News 10's lead. By the way, that Monday also happened to be the day that U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez resigned, a huge national news story. But on the late news, which draws the most viewers and is arguably local station's signature newscast, Gonzalez wasn't even among the top five stories, let alone the lead. Channel 13, in fact, devoted 46 more seconds to a man slapping his dog than Gonzalez. Not to be outdone, Channel 40 apparently spent a minute more on a Lodi woman who claims she saw Jesus' face appear on her back fence. Noted the columnist, of course, those who follow local TV news will not be surprised. Anyway, the article was going to note that there is an obsession with crime. On the news, uh, experts say that local TV news has been influenced by consultants who espouse a hook-and-hold strategy that they feel ensures rating success. According to the authors of We Interrupt This Newscast, the idea is to grab viewers with sensational news, often an alarming late development, and keep them tuned in by holding out the hope of a soft story that is useful or interesting. We've talked in the show before about how it's a sad commentary that here in America, investigative journalists are considered to be a special type of journalist. And we've remarked uh, previously about how good some of these spinmeisters are at bearing stories. I, uh, I was up in Tahoe a couple weeks back with a friend of mine who will be on this show, hopefully, in the weeks to come. His wife was a stewardess on Flight 800. She was, in fact, scheduled to be on that flight that exploded over Long Island Sound back in 1996. And it's quite clear to her and everyone else at TWA that uh, a missile took down that airplane. But you wouldn't know that by reading Popular Mechanics magazine, which said the following... After painstakingly reassembling the wreckage, the NTSB dismissed the possibility of a terrorist bomb or missile attack and concluded that fumes in the plane's nearly empty center wing fuel tank had ignited, most likely after a short circuit in the wire bundle. The FAA has since mandated changes to reduce sparks from faulty wiring. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you ask anybody in the aviation industry how plausible it is that 747s, under certain circumstances, will explode, and that despite this design flaw, nobody grounded the aircraft. Well, uh, uh, most people will actually chuckle at the notion. But you got to hand it to the Spinmeisters. They've managed to, uh, to basically take reality out of the discussion of what happened to that airplane. And final note for the day, when it comes to uh, you know, divorcing reality from leadership... How about this item from last month? As a result of a lawsuit, the White House was forced to release a manual that details how President Bush's speeches and other public appearances have been micromanaged 
and laboriously controlled for the past five years to weed out the merest whiff of protest. Noted the manual, all those attending Bush public events are to be carefully chosen with attendees searched for concealed anti-Bush banners. Seats close to the stage are to be reserved for extremely supportive fans of the president. In the terrible event that a heckler somehow gets within earshot of the media covering the speech, a rally squad is to surround him waving pro-Bush placards and chanting, USA, USA. An editorial in USA Today noted there's a bitter irony here. The White House's presidential advance manual was released to the public only after a lawsuit was brought by a West Virginia couple. They were handcuffed, arrested, fingerprinted, and briefly jailed for wearing anti-Bush t-shirts at an Independence Day speech the president gave in 2004. After the couple had been hustled away, Bush told his extremely supportive crowd this, On this 4th of July, we confirm our love of freedom, the freedom for people to speak their minds, free thought, free expression. That's what we believe. Noted the newspaper, too bad he forgot to tell his advance team. That's it for today's program. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week with a very special guest we're delighted to have on the program, Michael Pollan, the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma. Our thanks to our environmental correspondent, Jennifer Davidson, who'll be rejoining us next week. And we'll see you next week at the same time.